Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. But you start getting to the deeper level of really wanting to genuinely help people. And when people see that sincerity, that's the kind of thing that makes them want to come back. And it's a win for everybody then. Most people feel better about themselves when their words and deeds line up. So if we can get them to commit to something, they are more likely to do it as opposed to us telling them what to do. And what I want people to understand is influence is a skill, but it's not a skill that they can't master. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 27 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I am delighted to welcome Brian Ahern. Welcome, Brian. It is my pleasure to be on with you, Harsha. And as I indicated when we were talking beforehand, this will be the 150th episode I've done, so I get to celebrate with you. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Brian is a dynamic international keynote speaker, author, coach, and consultant. He specializes in applying the science of influence in everyday situations. He's only one of a handful of individuals in the world who currently holds the CMCT designation and one of just a handful to have earned the Cialdini Persuasion Trust CPT designation. These specializations in the psychology of persuasion were earned directly from Dr. Robert Cialdini, the most cited living social psychologist in the world on the science of ethical influence. I'm a huge fan of Dr. Cialdini's work and his book, Influence. It's one that I most often reference on my podcast. Brian is also a competent Toastmaster and a chartered property casualty underwriter. A cum laude graduate of Miami University, Brian has been in the business arena for more than 30 years and training people for over two decades. Brian's first book was named one of the top 100 influence books of all time by Book Authority. His second book, Persuasive Selling for Relationship-Driven Insurance Agents, was an Amazon new release bestseller in several categories. His latest book is The Influencer. Welcome, Brian. Hey, again, it is my pleasure to be on here with you. Thanks so much for taking the time. So, Brian, would you like to share a quote which resonates with you? One of the quotes that I share most often because I think it's powerful, I first heard it from my high school football coach and later learned it was from the Roman philosopher Seneca, but it is luck is where preparation meets opportunity. And I have seen that to be true that if you're prepared, when opportunities come around, good things happen. I know. I, I love that. And I'm a big fan of you know, Stoic philosophy. And I just love this whole idea about doing the work, doing the grind, doing the preparation, because mm-hmm. I, there's this whole debate about whether you know, people are lucky, but actually it's about doing the work so that when you do meet the right person, mm-hmm. then hopefully there's something in your backstory or your experience, which it's almost like a hook, which triggers you uh, to create this sort of serendipitous relationship between each other. So yeah, Absolutely. No, no, 
totally love that. Um, and and as you said, you played uh, football or American football to our UK listeners in in high school. Um, what was your position, and did you learn any life lessons from that, Brian? So in in high school, I played center and outside linebacker, and I learned a lot playing football because our coach used to tell us, you're going to learn a lot about life playing this game. And in reality, in the hot August sun, you know, with it beating down and you're tired and you're sweating, we were cursing them under our breath. We didn't believe a word of it. But then as we got away and we grew and we went off to college and all these other things, we look back and go, we learned a lot about life. And for me, it was about applying myself in season and out of season, um, working as hard as I could and trusting that good things would happen. And so it was phenomenal. I'm so glad that I played and particularly for the coach that I did play for. No, brilliant. And it's interesting with the podcast um, I found that quite a few of my guests have got either some sporting background or they did some sort of uh, hobby outside uh, their academic work. And I think it's really important in terms of building discipline, just ha- getting into good habits. And, and it's funny, I think those habits that you pick up earlier on, which actually you don't realize that you're picking up, they mm-hmm. subliminally come through to you. I, I think it's true. It took me a while to figure that out. So when I was in college, I was a competitive power lifter. When I got out of college, I was competing in bodybuilding and I was starting my insurance career. And people used to say things like, oh, it must be great. You know, you have so much discipline. That must be great for your job. And I really didn't understand how to apply the discipline to the job at the time. It was easy for me to know that when I left work, I was going straight to the gym and I would be there for two hours, usually six days a week. It was easy to eat the right foods and do all of those things, but I just didn't see how it applied to work. But once I figured that out, once I started saying, well, if I'm going to study for this designation, I need to be up 30 minutes early and I need to dedicate the time to reading, that I need to do certain things, then it all started to click. And that for me is what has made work easy. And especially as an entrepreneur, having to set a schedule and adhere to it and do all the things you need to, to grow your business. It's not something for everybody and it's not easy, but I really think if you have that background of discipline that quite often comes through sports, it makes it much, much easier. And, and I love the point that you made about you have to try and align your the, the discipline to a higher goal, because I think it's easy to say, um, be self-disciplined. And especially, I think, in the new year, people are trying to uh, create uh, New Year's resolutions. We're going to train more. We're going to try and lose weight, all these different things. But actually, if you can align that to a higher goal or value, like I want to get healthier, and the only way you can do that, like reverse engineer, is, is to train. Um, what, what do you think? Yes. Yes, I think it's true. And what I think is key is finding something that you love to do. So I, I loved being in the gym and working out. It wasn't hard for me to go do that. I When I made this radical transition to running and I started running marathons, but I really started to enjoy and fell in love with running. So for me, then the goals were just a reason to do what I already loved with more intensity and passion. And that's a good thing when every day you can wake up and say, I love what I do and I can see this goal and that makes me do what I love even more intensely. But the key, I think, is finding something that you love. So if you say you want to get healthy, find a sport or some activity that you can really say, I enjoy this. Because if you despise running and you try to go out and run you know, 5K, 10K every day, you are going to hate it and you will fail. But if you can align that goal with something that you already love, Boy, it makes it much easier. 
Totally. Just going back to your uh, career. So obviously you studied business at Miami University, and I actually didn't realize there was the, there was a Miami University in Oxford, mm-hmm. Ohio. After that, you moved into the insurance industry. And was mm-hmm. there any sort of specific strategy behind that, or was it just <laughs> one of those things—a series of experiments? It was a girl. <laughs> literally, <laughs> literally, I I had I was getting ready to graduate, and I had accepted a job in the retail industry. And the last week of school, I got a letter from Travelers Insurance, and I almost threw it away. But the only reason I decided to go to the interview was because the job was in Columbus, and that was where I had pretty much grown up. The girl I was dating was here, family, friends. So I thought, well, I owe it to her to go to the interview. Liked everything I heard, was offered the job, and decided that I would stay in Columbus. Now, now here's the irony of the whole story, though. So I got in the insurance industry, and the very first day of work, I'm sitting in the HR training room, and another trainee by the name of Jane walks in, and she's been my wife now for 33 <laughs> years. So, so within a few weeks, the other girl, I wasn't dating her anymore, and I started dating Jane, and I got a great career out of it as well. So it, it was serendipity. It, it was, yeah. I, I, I have only met maybe less than a handful of people who said, all I ever wanted to do was grow up and be an in insurance. Most people fall into the into this industry. Excellent. Moving on to the great man, Dr. Cialdini. When did you first come across his work and, and influence? Because I, I just love it. It's made such a profound um, difference on, on my life. Sure. I was about 15 years into my career. I had moved in from the underwriting side into the sales space, and I was working with the field salespeople at the company I was with at the time, a coworker, somebody who had been in my department, came down and gave a video to my boss and I, and it was Robert Cialdini presenting at Stanford. And when I watched that video, the light bulb came on and I thought, holy cow, what he's talking about, all of the psychology, it's the underpinning of all selling. I love the fact that it was research-based. I'm a very analytical person by nature, so that really resonated with me. And I especially appreciated his stance on ethics. He was very clear about non-manipulative ways to get things done. I started using the video and some training around the company, and then I signed up for Stanford's marketing. And the way I got in touch with Cialdini was one of the marketing pieces from Stanford came across my desk one day, and it said in bold letters at the top, bestseller, and right underneath it, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation. And I thought... I cannot believe they use that word manipulation because he's so clear about non-manipulative ways to do this. So something inside of me decided it needed to be addressed. And I emailed Stanford and I never heard from Stanford, but sometime later my phone rang and it was a representative from Robert Cialdini's office. And she said, I'm calling to thank you on behalf of Dr. Cialdini because you send an email to Stanford, they're changing the marketing of all of our materials. And I was like, wow, that is really cool. And so we had this nice conversation. And before she hung up, she said, if your company is ever looking for a guest speaker, he travels the world and speaks about this topic. I said, I sit next to the woman who plans our events and books our speakers. Let me transfer you. And as fate would have it, it was the summer of 2004. He was in Columbus, Ohio, a number of times addressed the insurance agents that represented the company. And it was during that time that I went through his training. And then I had to stay on my boss for three years to allow me to go out to Arizona to get certified. But that finally happened in early 2008. And I've been one of his certified trainers ever since. No, that, that's a brilliant uh, story, Brian. And I, I think it would be helpful for our listeners because um, I don't think uh, many of them uh, 
really have gone into depth into Robert Cialdini's work and, and influence. So I think it'd be really helpful to maybe go through each one of his, um, the, the seven areas, reciprocity, liking, social proof, authority, scarcity, commitment and consistency, and finally unity, which mm-hmm. was added to the list in 2016 when Dr. Cialdini wrote Persuasion. Um, would you mind just going quickly through those? Because I think it'd be really helpful uh, for our listeners to ha- have a better insight on this. Sure. Let me quickly give the backstory that Dr. Cialdini uh, was a Regents Professor Emeritus at Arizona State University, where he taught for more than three decades. Uh, he's retired, but he still travels the world and talks on this subject. When he was early on in his career, he had an instinct that said, if we really want to understand the social influence process, we can't confine it to a laboratory and, and basically a lot of college students. We've got to get out into the real world. So he took a, almost a three-year hiatus from teaching, and he went out and got jobs, selling cars, working at electronic stores, uh, making phone calls before the do not call list days and, and doing what he could to sell but he wanted to learn what the literature said, and he wanted to learn from people who he saw as very successful at influencing others. And then after that three years, he stepped back and he looked at everything that he had learned and he combined it with his understanding of the influence process through all of his years of study and research. And he said, you know what, there are really six principles, now a seventh, but at the time, six universal principles that people all across the globe tend to respond to in one way or another. And so he coined the term, the principles of influence or principles of persuasion. These have been around as long as human beings have been alive. It's, he didn't discover the principle of reciprocity, but he did codify all this and put it into language where people could say, wow, that makes sense. I can use that. He had the six principles originally, and as you said, in 2016, he introduced a seventh principle called unity. So did you want me to go through and talk very quickly about each? Yeah, I I think that would be really helpful, Brian, just to give a quick uh, overview of them. So the principle of liking says that we prefer to say yes to those we know and like. Now, everybody listening to this podcast or watching it is like, well, duh, we all know that. Um, But what people don't do a lot of times is strategically think about how to use that to get others to say yes and help them in several ways. So that's the first principle. The next one is reciprocity. Reciprocity is that natural feeling, that obligation that we feel to give to others who first give to us. So when we do something that's genuinely beneficial for another person, very often they will be more willing to do something if we need their help. Then we go to social proof, also sometimes called consensus in some of the writing. And social proof is just about how humans tend to look to others to see how they should behave in different situations. We are social creatures. So when we see lots of people doing something or people who are just like us, we tend to move in that direction. We take that as a cue that that's probably the right thing to do. Authority is all about expertise. You know, We defer to people that we look at as having superior wisdom or expertise. So the more somebody knows that you have expertise, the more likely they are to say yes to you. And then we come to commitment and consistency. This principle says that we feel this internal psychological pressure, but also an external social pressure to be consistent in what we say and do. And I really like to boil it down to this harsha word and deed. Most people feel better about themselves when their words and deeds line up. So if we can get them to commit to something, they are more likely to do it as opposed to us telling them what to do. And then there was scarcity that we value things more when we believe they are rare or diminishing. 
they're going away. So once we know that that thing might be more difficult to obtain, there's just something natural. We feel it in our gut. We just want that thing more. So again, as an ethical influencer, we want to make sure that if something is rare or limited, that we alert people to that because it will make it easier for them to say yes, but on the assumption that what we're offering is in their best interest, they don't want to miss out on it. So those were the six principles that he originally introduced back in the mid 80s with his book, Influence Science and Practice. And then in 2016, he introduced a seventh principle called unity. So a lot of people ask the question, well, why did it take you so long to introduce this principle? And he typically says, it was there all along, but I didn't see it because it was just kind of lurking under the surface. But unity is about shared identity, that it's easier for us to say yes to those who are of us, of our tribe, maybe within our family. Uh, an example here in the United States, my father served in the Marines. From the time I was a little boy, I could always tell when dad met another Marine, it seemed like he was closer to them than me, his own flesh and blood. And that's because of the deep connection, the bond that they share. So that's a quick overview of the seven principles. I think that's brilliant. And, and it's interesting when you, I, I, I really like the sort of the first two, the, the like you, the re reciprocity in terms of building a relationship. We didn't know each other until uh, you kindly reached out to me and, and sent me a very nice message saying that you had been listening to one of Dr. Cialdini's um, uh, webinars with Dory Clark. And that almost instantly created a, a connection between the two of us because mm -hmm. you, you you were very pleasant and it reached out in a nice way. And I think it's really interesting how doing these small things can make a big difference, mm -hmm. but it's about doing it in a ethical way, not a, a smarmy sort of uh, transactional way, uh, and just trying to build that relationship. Absolutely. I, I detest when I get connections on LinkedIn, for example, that say, hey, Brian, I was looking at your website. We could help you gain a thousand more followers, blah, 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 blah. You know what? That's a dime a dozen. So anybody who's out there listening to this, if you do it, stop because it doesn't work. It only turns people off. But it's much better when you can go in and make a connection maybe because you have something in common. So it's very natural for me if I hear a podcast and there's somebody on that podcast that, that I am connected to, I might reach out and say to the podcaster, hey, I just heard your podcast. So-and-so was on there. That's a good connection of mine. Thought I would reach out to connect, right? Usually at that point, they say, hey, you know, nice to meet you. Thanks for the note. At that point, at some interval, I might say, you know, I have been a guest on a lot of podcasts. And if you're looking for podcast guests, I'd be happy to, to talk to you about that. And almost every time it's like, hey, that would be awesome. And, and then we have this conversation. I want people to think about this. I know that your show is really designed to help people in their career and help get jobs, but think about what I do there. I make a connection based on something that we have in common. And then I gently let them know what my background is. They show interest. And all of a sudden we're having a conversation that can be mutual beneficial for both of us. And I just love that whole win-win thing, because I think too many people are thinking it has to be one side or the other, but actually both parties can mutually uh, benefit from these relationships. Also, I think on LinkedIn, if people just take the time to write a personalized note, you know, rather than just the connect thing, it, it just seems so impersonal. I, I agree. Now, if somebody sends me a request and it just says, I'd like to connect with you. I will send a note back and say, hey, I'm happy to connect. How did you find me? I will ask that question. So I always go back and then we have some conversation. And what I like to tell people is it's called social media. So we need to be more social. We don't just do these blasts and try to get people. We should try to be social and people will help 
people that they like and they'll help you make connections and you can help them and good things happen for both people. Brilliant. And and just taking it back to say a job search perspective. Now I can see a myriad of ways that you can implement these uh, principles. Now say you're at, a, at an interview and uh, you're trying to find sort of commonalities or links between you and the interviewer. Uh, maybe beforehand you've done some research they, they were the same university or their Toastmasters or, or, or whatever it is, or say the scarcity principle, uh, it's about trying to show the, um, the potential employer what they could be missing out on. Um, from your perspective, um, yeah, as you're the expert here, what, how would you go about trying to use the, some of these principles in the uh, interview or job search situation? I always think the place to start is with liking your reciprocity. Reciprocity can be a little harder because you might not, as a candidate, have something you can genuinely give or do that would be beneficial to that person. But absolutely making sure that you find out what you have in common and talking about those things. So I can give you a personal example. It wasn't a job search, but it was reaching out to a potential client. There's a large insurance company here in Columbus called Nationwide Insurance. It's one of the biggest in, in the country. And I got an opportunity with one of their senior vice presidents. So, you know, these busy person, limited time. We had 30 minutes scheduled. But early on, I said, hey, before we get very far, I have to ask you, how do you know Todd Alice? Now, Harsha, going back to our conversation earlier, he was my high school football coach. Oh, wow. So I, was, so I was wondering, how does this lady know him? And she says, oh, he's like my BFF at church. We've known each other for years. How do you know him? And I said, I played high school football for him. And we started having this conversation about this man who has so positively impacted both of our lives. All of a sudden, this incredibly busy, busy executive who had allotted 30 minutes for me gave me an hour and 15 minutes. That's just on the, and it was genuine. We, I wanted to really know how did she know him? I also know that it makes it easier for her to, to then like me and, and for things to happen. So that's one simple example. That could be done in an interview where you're connecting over somebody that you both know or uh, something that you've done or maybe where you've gone to school. You never know where that could lead. I love that point. And actually, from a personal perspective, when I was interviewing for one of my first graduate jobs, I happened to come across a lady and spoke to her about classical music. And even though I'm not a classical music aficionado, I knew a little bit more than her. And you know, it just completely changed the whole dynamic. So when we actually started the interview, it, it just went so much better. So I, I, you know, I, I just love that. And, and just in terms of the other principles, um, Brian, how, how, I mean, you know, things like uh, social proof, do you think that that might help in terms of if you have um, published you know, stuff on the internet or on your LinkedIn profile? Absolutely. I don't want to limit my thought process to just somebody coming out of school because it's yeah, harder sure. for them. They yeah, haven't. Yeah. But obviously, when you're into a career and then you're deciding to change, you don't start digging your well when you're thirsty you start digging it well before that, which means anybody listening to this, if you feel you have expertise in something, you should in some form be creating content and putting that out for the world to see. Because the more people see it, the more they view you as having expertise. Then when you are in that interview, you can say to that interviewer, oh, I've had articles published for and, and list the publications, or I have been on these podcasts that are you know listened to around the world. 
you've got something to stand on. And in the absence of that, that person may not really view you as much of an expert, but there are certain publications, certain podcasts, and, and other venues that once people know that you've been a part of that, your status becomes elevated. And it would be a huge miss to not talk about that. Well, hopefully in a few years' time, reframe and reset your career will have that status. But uh, unfortunately, not quite as yet, Brian. But no, I, I do like that, that whole idea of just um, you produce content, you have it out there. And uh, essentially, that gives, gives you, uh, and if other people like it, then people can see that you're either an authority or a recognized expert. And, and it's that third party um, validation. Because say if I post something or you post something and um, some big hitter says, oh, gives you a like or says, well done, that you, uh, puts almost their stamp upon you. Absolutely. And something beyond just putting it on LinkedIn so that the world sees it, very strategically, if you have something that you want people to know, go back to your contacts, the people you've connected with already, and search through those and say, who are the most relevant people who might be interested in this and send them that personalized message. So I will give you an example here. I was interviewed by an organization last month called AM Best TV. AM Best is the premier rating organization in the insurance industry across the United States. Anybody working in insurance here knows who AM Best is. So for me to have a 15-minute spot on their TV show was big. But I didn't want to leave it to chance that if I put it out on the, on the public part of LinkedIn, some of my contacts might not be on LinkedIn that day. So what I did strategically, there's 150 insurance companies that I have been reaching out to over time or have done business with. Every one of those people got a personal message from me and it had the link to that. And I've had a lot of people starting to come back and say, wow, I watch it. That was a great interview. Now we have conversation and we never know where that's going to go. And even if I don't get a piece of business right then, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking to build the reputation so that when the time is right, they think of Brian Ahern and they reach back to me. So, so there's so many ways to approach this as you create content. Yeah, and I, and I love that whole idea about relationship building because, you know, whether it's you being an entrepreneur or uh, developing a relationship with your colleagues or your mm -hmm. clients, um, yeah, don't think about it in the in the short term. Think about the long game. And, and I, I also love this whole idea about uh, personalizing it because, yeah, if you're just sticking on LinkedIn, you have no idea uh, who's going to see it. But if you actually take the trouble to email your contacts and, and say, look, this is something that I've done, it just makes such um, a, a difference. Yeah. And if somebody takes a moment, for example, to congratulate me on a work anniversary or something like that, I don't just hit the like button. I will hit the like, but then I will say, thanks, Harsha, or much appreciated, Joe, or I will put something in there. And if they want to have conversation, they'll pick up on that. And we will. Even if they don't, I know this, they respect the fact that I actually took time to personally respond. That's the social part. It takes time, but it, you have to look at it as an investment and that you're making connections and people are coming to know you, like you, trust you. And that's what may be the door opener down the road. Oh, brilliant. And I think that's a nice segue onto sort of career development, because I think there, there's probably a much bigger sort of arena to, to look in, um, in terms of, say, reciprocity. And I think the really interesting thing there is that if you get the mindset of you're going to help, 
if you can and you don't look upon it as a uh, a quid pro quo or I, I do this to get something back then I think that's a much more powerful thing and you don't even think about it mm-hmm. and then stuff that you do you know, way back people will remember they'll think oh Brian was very nice then mm-hmm. let me try and help him out um what, what do you think Brian yes quite often I will just ask the question what do you need to look like a rock star coming out of this what what can I do that is going to really elevate you in the eyes of your boss? So if I'm going to go somewhere and I'm going to speak and I'm talking to that person who's bringing me in, I want his or her boss to look at her and say, I am so glad that you reached out to that guy and brought him in here. So I will do everything I can. And that might just be the fact that I'm going to answer their emails same day as I see them. You know, I had two people reach out today. Hey, I need, you know, this financial document for us to go forward. Boom, within 10 minutes, I got it to them. Another person had questions on the contract I sent. Within a few minutes, I had responded to that because I want them to say, he is so easy to work with. And and they will recommend me to others. Maybe they'll bring me back. But I'm not just doing it because, oh, I'm going to get something out of this. I know in having reached out and having to market myself, the frustrations with getting people to return a call and an email and things. And so I want to display the behavior that I hope people would display to me. And it just makes me feel good knowing I'm helping them. So I've really moved away from, you know, this is a a way to get someone to do something. It is. There's no doubt about that. But you start getting to the deeper level of really wanting to genuinely help people. And when people see that sincerity, that's the kind of thing that makes them want to come back. And, and it's a win for everybody then. And, and just taking it to, say, a, a corporate situation, because I think there, um, you know, if you've got a job in one of these uh, you know, big corporates, then you have a base level of uh, academic expertise and intelligence. But then what separates you from everybody else is, mm-hmm. is those soft skills, mm-hmm. these influencing type skills. And I think if you can develop those in that area, so you know, develop, developing relationships, getting people to like you. And, mm-hmm. and I think that there's an interesting thing you said. It's not about getting people to like you, but you learning to like that other person. Is that, is that correct? Right. Yeah. Yes. Because again, when we learn these principles, we'll come at it at a certain level and we'll start laying hold of it. We'll start utilizing, we'll see some of the benefits and then you can keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And as you go deeper with the principle of liking, yes, Harsha, if you like me, it will be easier for you to say yes to me. But if you start to see that I really like you and I care about you and I want to help you have a great show and all those things, most of us have what we call a BS meter, right? We can tell if people really like us. And when someone senses that you truly like them and care about them, that's where they become more open to what you might ask. Because deep down, most of us believe this, friends do right by friends. And and the good news is the more I get to know you and like you, I do want to give my best. I want to make sure this is the best show that I've ever done, that it's your best show. And, And you like that. And so you're open. Everybody wins. But it really starts with that mindset that says, how can I come to like this person? Because if I try too hard to get you to like me, I come off like that desperate salesperson and people will go, no, I don't want any part of this. Yeah, because I think that authenticity piece is just so important because Mm -hmm. it has to be genuine and it can't. And also, I've heard of situations where, say, on the reciprocity thing, people almost try and use that against you. So you uh, give sometimes people give you things which aren't really of value, but then right. you feel obligated to them. And I, I hate um, accepting stuff, especially in a business environment, um, because I don't want to feel obliged. 
So I've got a maybe it's because I've read Cialdini and I'm always looking out for that. But I suppose that's something maybe you have to look out for as well. People who are maybe trying to game the system. There will always be people who do that. People who've never even read his book, who just innately learned that, oh, when I do something, if I give something big enough, they'll want to, they'll feel this obligation to do something for me. And usually we have a, a sixth sense to sniff that out. And, and you obviously are, are, are getting that from some people. Now, the unfortunate part is there may be a few people who legitimately want to do something kind or help you and and you miss out on that. But on the whole, you're probably your sense is probably correct in, in rejecting some of the people who are coming your way. What we need to do, though, if, if we're the person who's trying to influence and so we're trying to engage that principle, that's where our sincerity starts to come through. And again, I think you have a BS meter and your, your listeners do, too, that they can probably see and sense the difference between the insincere and the sincere. So all you listeners adopt the mindset that says, I want to like the people that I'm with. The more you do that, the easier it gets. And the easier it gets means it's just naturally who you are. But the benefits that start coming from that is it informs your giving. When you do try to give, people more genuinely receive it because they know that you care. And it starts to inform all of the other principles that you'll use to help somebody. That's brilliant. Say you're you're trying to get a promotion at work or you know, the compensation issues start. Are there any um, things, strategies that you think might be helpful? The impression I get from influence is that it's not about trying to game the system. It's really about trying to present things in the in the most optimal way. Because I, I think I, I've read something, something where you said that it's about trying to make sure that you understand the other person and you're trying to help them get to a better place. But say with your your boss, what would you suggest? Uh, any strategies on that? So you, so you have to lay that groundwork well before you ever ask for any kind of raise or promotion, because your performance is going to be the lead indicator as to whether or not you've earned it. But how you approach that, so going to your boss and perhaps asking for extra work. And, and I used to joke with my boss again about, hey, you know, my job is to make you look good. And he would laugh. But as I said that, I was also serious. I knew that my performance at the next level the people who were looking at him, they weren't concerned about me. They were concerned about my boss. And, and so how we supported him made his life either easier or harder. But the more that I did that, the more that he saw the things I was doing to develop myself, the more I was willing to take on, those are all acts of reciprocity to go beyond what is normal for that job. That gives you the leg to stand on when you go in and you have that conversation and you can say, I feel like I've really earned this because, and you've got things you can genuinely fall back on and say, this went beyond the scope of what I do. Now, I was very fortunate that my boss understood that all the things I did outside of the company, he, he told me once, he said, you know, when you speak, when you train, when you coach, consult, all of this stuff that you do, the writing of the blog, you're a better speaker, trainer, coach, consultant, writer for our company because of all the stuff that you do outside. And he appreciated that. And so it was a, a virtuous cycle where he was benefiting, but I was benefiting too. And it made it easy for him when I went in and say, I think I deserve a raise for him to find a reason to make it happen. No, I just love that point. And I think for our listeners out there, if you can do stuff outside of your normal day-to-day -day work, as you're saying, speaking, writing blogs, first of all, you improve, you just get better. But also, I think it's that external piece that if you put it on LinkedIn or you've sent mm -hmm. it to your clients and then they email your boss and say, Brian, he did a great job. It's that third party validation, which makes such a difference. 
Yeah. Whatever you're doing, maybe outside the four walls of your job, can you in some way connect it back to that? So someone might be listening to this and saying, I love golf. I don't see how golf applies at all to what I do, but I am sure that there are principles through the game of golf that you learn. You learn how to control your emotions after you've hit a bad set or a shot. You learn about fairness, right? It's always about, you know, you being honest about where the ball landed, things like that. There are things that you can take away from that game that you can thoughtfully say, oh, I can apply this to what I do at work. And if you start doing that, that's an opportunity for you to maybe tell your boss, hey, you know, this may sound funny, but when I play golf, I am actually becoming more of a person of integrity. I learned emotional intelligence because I have to control my emotions. And, and you can start talking about these things that are making you a better employee. Now you're starting to cross that bridge and, and that can make both sides feel better. And I, I love that point because I, I quite like playing tennis. And there are so many things from tennis. You're learning to manage your emotions. Mm -hmm. You're on your own. You have to deal with the ups and downs of the game. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I play at a very um, lowly level. But that, that's not the point. You're learning things all the time. And I think that's such a great thing. If you can uh, take those uh, lessons, say, from weightlifting or running or whatever you do, and then take it from that and apply it to your working life, I think that's a brilliant point. After Influence, Dr. Cialdini wrote Persuasion and you know, obviously the concept of unity. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, Brian? Sure. Persuasion is different than persuasion. It's a play on the word. Instead of saying persuasion, we say pre-suasion. But persuasion is all about setting up the moment. I like to call it setting the stage. What can you say or do before you ever try to persuade somebody that might change the mindset so that it's easier for them to say yes to you? And I will give you uh, an example from my personal life. My wife and I, I, I told you when I took the insurance job, within a few weeks we were dating and things were wonderful until about three months later in the fall, my old girlfriend called and it really threw me for a loop. And suddenly I was indecisive between these two women. And my indecision lasted six months where I, with one, with the other, with one. It was late April that following year and my wife and I still worked together and I saw her in the break room, asked how she's doing and she said, fine. And by the way, I won't go out with you again. I'm tired of the back and forth. And, and I couldn't blame her for that. But I also felt like I'd settled things in my heart and I knew she's the one I wanted to be with. In fact, I was thinking I wanted to marry her. So I knew I was going to do, need to do something big. I knew nothing about persuasion, but I knew I needed to do something big to win her back. So on her birthday, a few weeks later, I had asked if I could take her to dinner and she said, yes. I sent her a dozen roses at work. She liked that. Showed up at her apartment, another dozen roses, bottle of wine. She really liked that. We get ready to leave and I had hired a Rolls Royce and a chauffeur oh, wow. to drive to drive <laughs> us to downtown Columbus. And we rode this glass elevator up more than 30 stories and had this romantic dinner overlooking the, the skyline. And we took the glass elevator back down. And in the back of the Rolls Royce, I popped the question and she said, yes. Now that sounds really elaborate. Well, I was in the doghouse. I needed to do something elaborate, but think about this. If I had said that day in the break room, I'm sorry, I love you, will you marry me? She wouldn't have said yes. <laughs> but when I set the stage romantically, it changed how she thought and felt about me. And that opened her up to my ask. And I think people need to understand this because this can really magnify your attempts at persuading another person because two people can make the very same ask, but maybe depending on where they are or just a question or a word that they used beforehand can change how somebody thinks. And it can make a very dramatic difference in the number of people who are willing to say yes to you. 
Oh, I, I just love that story, Brian. Uh, she just couldn't have said no after all of that. No, and we're, here we are 34 years later. So she, I think she feels like she made the right choice. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, and I, I think that's a nice segue into obviously your new book, The Influencer. I just love the way that you set it up with a, an individual and effectively uh, talk him uh, through his life. And and actually, there, there are bits of his, um, uh, the way he proposed to his wife, which I think come from your story, which I, I quite like. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about the book and, and why you wrote it? Well, I wrote the book because my first book was a heavy psychology slash business book. Second book was sales. And there are some people who will never pick up either of those, but they will read a good story. And business parables seem to be a pretty popular genre. So during COVID, we all had a little more time on our hands as we were kind of locked in. And I just, I I don't remember when the thought hit me, but I, I decided I wanted to try my hand at writing a story. So I began, I knew I was on the right track when my wife and I were driving to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania one day. Uh, many, many months ago. And I have this app where I could download what I've written and we could listen to it. So we listened to this, what I had done so far. And I overheard her telling somebody, yeah, Brian's writing a story. It's like a novel and it's actually good. So (laughs) thanks for the vote of confidence. But I knew that I was onto something at that point. So I wanted to do this to open up teaching influence to a whole new set of readers, those who wouldn't pick up the first two books. And I literally made the story up as I went. But I will say that every character is based on somebody that I really learned things from. So what John is sharing through the, through the book is things that I have learned. And I did incorporate some persuasion into his engagement proposal to, to his wife because I saw how valuable that was. And I saw that as I told that story, it resonated. So I built some of that into, into the book. But it just follows this young man from the time he's born. You see that he goes through school. He's ordinary. He's, his grades aren't great. He's no uh, super athlete or anything. He's like most of us. He's ordinary. But he begins to learn about influence from coaches and mentors and clients, and he's smart enough to retain it and put it into practice. And he sees the benefits of that. And what I want people to understand is influence is a skill, but it's not a skill that they can't master. You know, I know you can't see, I'm not standing up, but I'm, I'm five foot nine. And because I lift weights, I'm about 215 pounds. Could never dunk a basketball, will never be able to dunk a basketball. It's a skill I do not possess. But unlike that, influence is something that we can choose to learn, put into practice, and then perfect it by by seeing where we're succeeding and where we're failing and stepping back and adjusting. And no matter where we are on the spectrum of being able to influence others, we can continually improve throughout the rest of our lives. And I do believe it's a skill that is critical for your professional success and it's pretty darned important for your personal happiness. Yeah, and I and I just love that that point that you make, Brian, about learning how to get better at this. Because I think a lot of people say they think they're not good at networking or building relationships, but mm-hmm. actually, a lot of these things you can learn by being open minded and just mm-hmm. doing more and more. And I think the same thing with influence. I think at the beginning, you know, obviously, you have the six principles, and you're trying to think how you can uh, implement them in real life. And maybe it's not so easy, but actually, the more you do it, I think the the better you become. And then it becomes natural. And it doesn't then look as if you are trying to sell yourself. Yes. The more that you incorporate it into what you do, like any skill, it gets easier because the more we learn, it relegates to the subconscious, which drives so much of our behavior. And so before you know it, that's just how you're operating. I've literally had times where people will say, I know what you were trying to do to get me to say yes. And I'll think, what was I doing? 
because I wasn't maybe outwardly doing it. And they'll point something out and I'm like, yeah, that is right. But it was just so much a part of me that I didn't have to forwardly think about it. But I think the caveat here, Harsha, is if you do something wrong and you don't correct it, like if you swing a golf club wrong and you keep swinging it wrong just because you want to get through the round of golf, you will not improve. So you do need to step back. And John does this throughout the book. He steps back and he assesses what's going well, what's not, how do I adjust? That's the essence of actually learning and growing. And so I want people to, to recognize that. I've been teaching this for almost 20 years and I'm still learning and growing. Fundamentally, you have these principles and people potentially can use them or there are unethical people out there. The thing that I take from it is that, look, provided you're being straight with people, I think it, this is very much a way of presenting information, trying to move people uh, towards the choice that you think is the best for them. You're not right. trying to play them in any way. It's mm -hmm. simply about presenting things in the most favorable light. And, and I think in a way with your career, it's about trying to market yourself, whether it's to your clients or whether it's your coworkers or whether it's your boss. And I don't think there's anything wrong in that. You've seen people out there who are great at their jobs, but they're just not very good at marketing themselves. Yes. When people hear words like networking, they always think of, you know, cocktail parties and meeting everybody. I detest those. It is draining for me to work a room. And I don't like to do that. I would much rather find one or two people and just sit down and have a conversation like this. But I do have people telling me all the time, like, oh my gosh, you're one of the best networkers I know because I do rely on my strengths. I, I utilize LinkedIn. I'm very diligent on my follow-up with potential clients and current clients. So I am staying in front of them. I am, in a sense, marketing myself because I'm staying top of mind. And when people can move away from what they think is like a kind of a smarmy interaction in a networking situation to, okay, what are my strengths and how could I use those strengths to, to keep myself in front of people? People so they know who I am and what I do, then it becomes a lot easier. One of the things I did early in my career when I learned about personal branding, I used to use a tagline in my corporate job that said, when it needs to be done well. And that was on my every email that I sent. When people called, my vo called and got my voicemail, the message was literally this, do you need something done well? then you've come to the right place. Hi, this is Brian. And I'd give the rest of the message. But I would have people respond to that all the time. Like, ha, 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 I need something done well. Really, Brian, why I'm calling is. But I had changed their thinking. And if I lived up to my promise, if I did things really well, they kept coming back. And so I built a reputation with one little tagline on an email and that I used in my voicemail. That's a great story. And Brian, I think we're coming up to the end of our time. And, you know, I've just loved talking with you. Uh, actually, we could have a couple of shows you know, going really uh, in depth into influence, but unfortunately, you know, time, time is short. But is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we leave? Obviously, I'll make sure all your contact details and ways to get in touch with you are in the show notes if we bring it all the way back to where we started when we talked about the principle of liking. And if you think about my advice about do everything you can to like the people you're with, that all but removes what you had talked about, you know, people who use this and try to manipulate you. Because again, I would never manipulate my friends. I know you wouldn't. I'm sure your listeners wouldn't. So the more we can do to come to know and like those people, it will make us not do anything that's in our best self-interest, but that's mutually beneficial. We will put forth our best effort. It will inform how we can give and be most helpful. All of these good things, but it starts there. It starts with the relationship and that simple decision going into every situation saying, what can I do 
to like these people that I'm going to interact with. If they don't like you in return, at least you'll still enjoy your day more because you'll still be able to say, I like everybody that I interact with. I, I totally agree because I think there's always something within somebody that you, you like, but you just have to dig deep enough. And I, I remember coming across countless people and you're thinking, you know, initially you might meet them, you think, oh, I've got nothing in common with them. But actually, if you do dig a bit deeper, suddenly find out that you might have mutual friends. But mm -hmm. if you don't make an effort, that's not their fault. That's your fault for not making right. the effort to dig a, a little deeper. Abraham Lincoln once said, people are about as happy as they make their minds up to be. This is a, the choice that we can make going into situations. How can I come to like these people? And if I'm doing everything I can, I will probably enjoy my day and my interactions with people significantly more than I might be right now. I think that's a great point. It, it's really about reframing the situation and thinking, okay, mm -hmm. say things go wrong rather than it, it's a disaster, it's potentially mm -hmm. an opportunity. And I think it's always thinking what is the best in the situation rather than the worst. Yeah. That reminds me when I was in my corporate life, somebody in accounting called me one day and he was a friend and he goes, Hey man, we got a problem. And I said, no, Steve, we got an opportunity. And he goes, sure. When you're in sales, it's an opportunity. When you're in accounting, it's a problem. <laughs> But by the way, when, when, when you say that, Brian, I, I did get to the end of your book and obviously I'm not going to give the game away, but I, I do like the ending and how it all turns out well for John. But that's a pretty uh, bad situation that he was in. Yeah, it, it was, but he relied on his skills and, you know, all's well that ends well. Brilliant. And and what, one final thing, uh, Brian, would you like to give a quick shout out to anybody who's um, helped you in your journey or family or anybody, I, I like to give my guests that opportunity. Gosh, there would be so many to give a shout out to, but I, I will, I will say my wife, because, you know, leaving the corporate job a little over three years ago was a scary proposition. And not only has she been nothing but supportive, but she's on the phone, sending emails and doing everything she can to outreach to various organizations to try to get an opportunity for me to, to speak to them. So I'm very blessed that she supports me more than just in words, but in deeds as well. Oh, fantastic. And, and, and obviously, Dr. Cialdini as well for writing that great book. And sure, changed my life. Together. Yeah. If I, if I hadn't sent that email to Stanford, the whole course of my career, and then really my life would be very, very different today. Brian, um, it has been such a pleasure. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And thank you so much for you know, taking your valuable time to be with us on the podcast today. It was my pleasure. I, I love talking about this. I love getting to share the word with other people. And I, I hope that it has a very positive impact for your listeners and, and anybody else that might come across it. Thanks so much, Brian, and really appreciate your time. Take You're care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes, then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.